Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. So again, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm sure you've seen the pictures and the headlines are both talking about things that we are witnessing in our world because of Corona that are undeniably wonderful, even though Corona is not. Less traffic on the road is wonderful. Fewer car accidents, therefore. Fewer deaths because of that. Less smog in our air is wonderful. Have you noticed the blueness of the L.A. sky, less tinged with that gray that it sometimes is? It's an unbelievable picture that I assume is real because I've seen it in reliable places. It shows that from the northern parts of India, the country, you can see the Himalayan mountains for the first time in a hundred years. For the first time in a hundred years, those towering mountains and their snow-capped tips are visible from northern India because hundreds of years of pollution of the sky have been cleansed in just a matter of weeks. Just hold on to that image. Look for it after Shabbat if you haven't seen it, and we'll get back to it. Some of you have heard me mention the name Dr. John Gottman. He's a couples therapist out of Seattle, happens to be an Orthodox Jew, but that's immaterial to what I'm talking about. He happens to be also, somewhat coincidentally, an inspiration both to me and to Javi in our work. I learned about him when I was in rabbinical school, and he informs a lot of the work that I do with couples, leading up to a chuppah afterwards, and is a central part of the uh, methodology that Javi uses in her couples therapy. And he is a scholarly researcher of what makes relationships tick and work. He wrote a very wonderful book called Why Marriages Succeed or Fail, which I recommend to every couple that I work with. And he has shown, and he really believes, and I think he's right, that there is a magical formula, a magical number. It's quite amazing that represents the ratio within a relationship of positive, good, wonderful, praise-heavy moments to negative interactions, below which seems to suggest that the relationship is going to be in trouble and above which suggests that the relationship is going to be just fine. And he says it's amazing that something so um, interpersonal could be mathematical, but he's found it to be the case, five to one. He believes there are all sorts of marriages. There are marriages that are volatile and have a lot of... Um, intimacy and a lot of ecstasy and a lot of laughter, a lot of exuberance and a good amount of fighting too. And as long as the moments of connection are about five times as frequent as the moments of bumping up against one another, a volatile marriage can be successful and wonderful. And there are quieter marriages that have less and fewer explosions of joy and fewer arguments. As long as those moments of joy are about five times as frequent as the moments of discontent, that marriage can be quite a successful one. From the psychotherapeutic world to the rabbinic world, the Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that he says to every couple he has a chance to speak to, he has one prescription for them, just one, to make their home a happy one, to make their relationship a healthy one. He says once a day, not most days, not every other day, not when you remember, once per day, each member of the marriage 
and I suppose you could extend it to the rest of the family, has to find something else in the other person to praise. It sounds simple. It is not. Not generic. You're great. Something specific that they did or they said or that they represent. If each member of the couple finds something to praise in the other every day, he suggests doing it at the end of the day, cumulatively, the impact on how you feel about being in each other's presence is monumental. I think they're both right. I know it when I'm experiencing it on both sides. I feel it when I, when I, when I neglect to and when it doesn't happen to me. And I think it can ramify into almost any relationship out there. Lena Rustin, who is a British expert on the issue of stammering, which I just did for a second, on how it is that the brain has a hard time to produce certain syllables, to stutter, to stammer. She believes, kind of counter other speech pathologists and their approach to it, that it's not purely um, an issue with, with the connection between the mind and the tongue. She thinks stammering becomes a whole family issue. It exists in the family dynamic because you adjust to the person who's stammering. I find that way all the time. I say this with zero judgment whatsoever. But when I'm conversing with someone who has a bit of a stammer or a stutter, I find myself unwittingly mirroring that rhythm. You get into the rhythm of speaking of the other person. Maybe even have it, forget about the issue of stammering. You, I speak differently. Maybe you found it. You speak differently in the presence of different people because you are adjusting that flow of thought from your brain to your mouth differently based on how it's coming back to you. So she says the whole family adjusts when there is someone in the family who's stammering. And so to switch the stammer, to heal the stammer, to transcend it, all of the relationships she believes needs to be, need to be renegotiated, particularly if a child is going to transcend a stammer that they are struggling with. And how do you renegotiate all the relationships in a family and how do you do it safely? Her recipe, which has worked phenomenally, is praise. You would think, what's the relationship between praising and stammering? Her diagnosis and her prescription is for the family of someone where there is a stammerer to overflow with praise for one another amongst all the members of the family, which is a good idea in general. She told the families with which she was working that every day they must catch each member of the family doing something right and say so. Specifically and positively and sincerely, every member of the family, but especially the parents, had to learn to give and receive praise. And what she found out is that this methodology wasn't the only thing she did, but because of this methodology, it didn't just help the child who stammered. It saved marriages because it introduced into the discourse of the family unit that the most important thing they can say to one another is not to correct them when they've done something wrong or critique them when they unloaded the dishwasher the wrong way or point, point out this pet peeve or why it was hard to share a home or a domicile with the other, but to praise the other people in the family for what they were doing right. Now, the connection from that set of openings to Parshat Tazriya Matsora, it's obvious, right? Wink, wink. It's not that obvious. 
One of the obviousnesses of it is the ways that the rabbis connected this notion of tzara'at, the skin disease, to speech. Many of you know this. There is an enormous amount of rabbinic material associating, even though it never says so explicitly in the Torah, the skin disease coming to someone who had been using speech poorly, Lashon Hara. And some of that seems fanciful, why the rabbis would imagine that you would be punished with a skin disease for speaking poorly, except that I imagine the rabbis trying to answer, why is this amazing text that has such rich stories where every verse seems to matter so much and it's mostly a text about living a religious spiritual life. It's not a medical journal. It's not a medical tool book. Why does it spend so many chapters? We just spent so many minutes reading through this disease called Mitzorah. And the rabbis, Tzarat, the rabbis came to the conclusion that it must be that what's going on here is not just a physical skin disease, but it must be that it's something that comes to you as a result of a spiritual affliction and a spiritual affliction is not being able to hold yourself back from using your tongue wickedly. And they found clues in the Torah. Miriam, Moshe's sister, who's stricken with Sarat after speaking poorly of Moshe. It doesn't say that's why, but they're right after each other. Moshe himself, who at the burning bush speaks poorly of the Israelites, believes that they will not listen to him, gets stricken with a skin-like disease. And this notion of minak, midak neged midah, that you, you, the punishment fits the crime. And so you can see the association. When you speak poorly of someone and embarrass them and spread a Lashon Hara, you isolate them from others. You make them feel embarrassed and alone and lonely and scared. And your punishment is that you get something that makes you feel alone and embarrassed and you must be isolated from others. So those are some of the reasons why the rabbis made this connection, which now seems a little more obvious, between speech and sara'at. But Rabbi John, Lord Jonathan Sachs, who we mentioned before, takes it a bit further. It's not just that the rabbis understood that you got sara'at from Lashon Hara. The rabbis ended up focusing on the notion, the sin of Lashon Hara, in a very interesting way. And he says it's perhaps the mitzvah in our tradition that's most in the category of being honored and paid attention to, not in its observance, but in its breach. Think about it for a second. Many of the mitzvot, we talk about their violations, but we also talk about doing them. Keeping kosher, lighting Shabbat candles, eating matzah on Pesach, not lighting a fire on Shabbat. There's a whole lot of material about doing the mitzvah, whether it's a thou shalt or thou shalt not, the proper way. Most of the material about the mitzvah of Lashon Hara is about the violation of it. How easy it is to slip. Who's to, who's to blame? How it impacts the listener and the one saying it. There are plenty of tomes written about Lashon Hara, the scourge. There's not much written about the proper use of speech in our tradition. There's not much written about the positive observance of this mitzvah. And one reason why, according to Lord Jonathan Sachs, who is a romantic realist, he has a romantic view of reality, but he's a very realistic view of humanity, which I really connect to. I like thinking of us as aspiring angels, but recognizing that we're also just barely evolved apes. We really are. 
And he says that one of the reasons why so much about Lashon Hara is written in the negative is it is a very hard sin, and it's a sin, to attack head on. It's very hard to go straight to the issue and just tell people to stop doing it. It's so central to communication, to speak about other people. It's one of the ways in which we figure out who in our lives is on our side, who's in our group. It's one of the ways that we put people in our group and send people out of our group. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it's a very human thing, and it's a very animalistic human thing. Robin Dunbar, who's an anthropologist at Oxford, wrote, the specific form of language that bonds a group together is gossip. Think about that. It's gossip in its worst forms and even in its somewhat benign forms that make a group a group. Back to the quote. Because this is, this is the way the members of the group can learn whom to trust and who not to. So gossip is not one form of speech among others. According to Dunbar, it's the most primal of all uses of speech. It is why humans developed language in the first place. Think about that. One of the reasons that we, why we can speak so specifically and evolved past grunts is not so that we could read books. That happened way after. Not so we could give speeches. That happened way after. So we could identify who's in and who's out, who's safe and who is dangerous. To talk about that tribe over there or that person in our tribe that could make lives hard for those in our group. If we look at it really honestly and really realistically, it explains, not that it's a good thing, but it explains why it's so ubiquitous in our society, why it's so ubiquitous on Facebook and Twitter, why so many jokes out there, particularly in the political sphere, are so biting, and why it's in synagogues. We talk about one another because it feels good in the moment. It helps draw circles around us that we like being a part of. And it dips into an animalistic urge to make others outside of the particular group we've created. And again, according to Rabbi Sachs, gossip creates community. And community, this is a quote, community is impossible without gossip. Whew, that's a hard one. I somehow believe that an aspect of that is true, even though I push against it because I see the extent to which Lashon Hara in communities, and including ours, tears people away, makes people feel disconnected from one another and from the synagogue itself. No matter how much the rabbi pounds the bima on this issue, and here I am, I'm pounding the bima on this, Rabbi Sachs is telling us that no matter how much a rabbi pounds the bima, it will continue on some level. Now, I want to bring this back to how I began. During these weeks of the COVID phenomenon, and they're continuing, we have lost a lot. That is undeniable. I've lost you in this room. We've lost financial security. You've lost jobs. We've lost lives. But we have gained a lot, too. And it's okay to name what has been gained. Not that we're saying the cost is worth it, but there is still has been some gain. And at least the in-person version of Lashon Hara that would be happening in these pews if you were here, 
that is happening at Minyanim around the country in person, that happen at Kiddushes, at least the in-person Lashon Hara in this community has quieted down to almost a whisper. It's just not happening. It might be happening in individual conversations and emails are happening to one another, speaking about this person or that person, about me, another rabbi, another member of the staff, another member of the community. You're all human after all. It's not infecting our community the way it sometimes does, and sometimes it infects our community. And is the lack of that Lashon Hara in our community weakening us? As Rabbi Sachs says, is the Lashon Hara, is the gossip so needed to sustain us? Or are we during these weeks and months, to go back to my first image, seeing the Himalayas of what it's like to share and build and live community without the sniping and the biting and the digging and the rancor and the cynicism and the spite that does exist in our building every Shabbat on some level every day. And I don't think it's just the absence of Lashon Hara that we're witnessing. And it's not because anyone has gone out there and said, hey folks, stop saying Lashon Hara and it's somehow worked this time versus other times. I think it's because we've been doing as a community so much of the type of speech that Dunbar and Leah Rustin, Lena Rustin, and Rabbi Sachs say is so important, and that is praise. So much focusing on the good tissue in our community. We have less room as we support one another and as we sing to each other on Zoom and as we think about ways we can uplift each other. We just have left less room for being snarky and for being undermining because we're building community with compassion, care, and kindness, which, guess what? is the kind of community you want to build anyway. And we're spending so much of our breath trying to do that for one another because it seems so right and so obvious and so important. Who has oxygen left over to insult and to critique? And when we come back, because we will, may it be sooner rather than later, how quickly will the traffic clog on La Cienega? And how quickly, I think tragically, will the heavens fill with smog again? And how soon into that first daily minion, that first kiddush, will the other plague of Lashon Hara seep back into our prayer experiences? I hope we can keep it at bay, my friends, both by calling it out when we see it and because I've enjoyed and appreciated so much of the absence of it, I'm going to call out more of it when I see it, when this community returns in person. And I hope you will join me. I hope we'll keep it at bay by calling it out when we're witness to it and holding ourselves from it, but also and mostly by using our mouths and our words and our deeds and our time in the way that we're most intended to be used by our Creator, and that is to praise and to draw close and to love. And I miss you and I love you and I wish you a Shabbat Shalom. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. 
If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.